For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. Are you ready for a conversation about fibre production and treading more lightly on the land? And actually protecting or even enhancing biodiversity. Wouldn't that be a fine thing? It's not what happens mostly now. We know that the fashion industry's carbon impacts are significant. The low estimate is that about 4% of global emissions is down to fashion, but it could be up to 10%. Some of that is from shipping, and some of it's actually from how we wash and use our clothes. But we do know that the lion's share comes from textile production, whether at the factory level or on the farm. And that's also where fashion impacts biodiversity, right? So I want us to think about how can we do it differently? Who needs to come together to make change? It can't just be the farmer and it can't just be the brand saying, do this. It's got to be about cross-pollination and sharing of expertise and ideas and innovations. And then someone has to fund it. These are some of the big questions driving the initiatives that we're talking about on today's show, which I've partnered with Country Road to bring you. As you know, we generally don't run any ads on this show and I literally reject like 95% of outreach from sponsors. It has to be something very authentic to make me say yes. But sometimes a properly inspiring initiative crops up that fits perfectly with our editorial approach and this is one of those. So thank you, Country Road, for supporting this week's episode. My guest is someone I've had on my interview list for ages. Her name is Marielle Chamberlain, and she is a textile technician and also a member of the Society of Dyers and Colorists. So part of this episode is about all the different jobs you can find in fashion and how you don't just have to be a designer. This is also a conversation about factories. I was going to say listen out for what Marielle says at the end, but I've decided I'm just going to play it for you now because it's too good. Here goes. When a factory's running really well, it's like a family. And there is such a rich variety of things to do when you have a manufacturing ecosystem. Because it's not just one factory, it's always a collection of different operations that kind of work in synergy with each other. And that's another thing that people don't realise. They think, oh, we'll just put one thing in. It's like, it doesn't work like that like you think of Northern Italy, you think of Northern England, it's a collection of capability. And what that means is you've got all this sort of co-creativity of artistry plus the engineering and the manufacturing, but there's jobs for so many kinds of people. There's jobs for people who are neurodiverse. There's jobs for people who just want to clock in and go home at the end of the day. And there are jobs for people who are brilliant at inspecting things. And there are jobs for people who like driving forklifts. And there are jobs for people who love policy and quality management. Right. I just found that so interesting because I'm very used to looking at the trouble with factories. I've made shows about garment worker injustice, unfair conditions, all of that. And it's very important stuff, but we hardly ever hear about the good factories. So this is an episode about the opportunities to make fashion more sustainable that exist at the factory level and the skills and capabilities that are already there. Partly it's a call to action on reshoring, but it's also an encouragement. Marielle wants us to look around and recognise what we've already got in our various countries. Wherever you're listening, this, this is there. 
local skills, manufacturing and R&D capacity. It's so easy to talk about what we've lost, but we've still got this stuff. So Marielle's startup, Full Circle Fibres, is working on a project called Mud to Mull, and it's one of the recipients of a climate grant from Country Road. A few years ago, 2020, I think, Country Road launched Australia's first fashion industry climate fund to support grassroots projects that are trying to reduce fashion's carbon footprint and also to build climate resilience. It allocated 1.5 million Aussie dollars in grant funding over the first three years. And there was a competition. Initially, three projects were chosen. And I'm going to talk you through them because they are so interesting. So one of them is called Trust for Nature, which works with wool growers to protect the habitat of a particular bird, delightfully called the Plains Wanderer. Have a look at him. I did. He's like a little flightless guy who lives in northern Victoria, but is critically endangered. We'll share a picture in the show notes. Trust for Nature's Climate Fund grant contributed to a conservation covenant, which, if you want to hear how those things work, we talked about it in Series 8 in the episode with wool grower Simon Cameron. Different story, not linked to this fund, but it's a good explainer in that interview about what it takes to protect native grasslands. We'll share a link. We'll also share a link to an older episode that I did with the wonderful Helen Crowley all about fashion's links to biodiversity. And Helen was actually one of the judges on the Country Road Climate Fund. So I love how all that stuff meets up. Now, another one of these three recipients of the fund in the first round was Landcare Australia. And their project will develop a toolkit to help fibre farmers make informed decisions about carbon project opportunities. And that'll accelerate their participation in the green economy. Last but not least was Marielle's project Mud to Marl. So Full Circle Fibres got together with academics from Deakin University and textile producers and dyers in Geelong, which is in Victoria, to trial a low-impact, end-to-end manufacturing programme, all domestically in Australia, starting with the raw fibre and literally ending up with sewing the garment. It's about circularity. It's about adding value to something overlooked. So this is also interesting, right? Australia, very famous for its wool, supplies millions of kilograms of raw fibre. Most of it gets exported. A portion of this wool clip, though, is usually deemed too low quality for the fashion textile industry. And farmers have to sell it at very low prices, right? In the Mud to Marl project, they're using this shorter offcut fibre and they're blending it with premium cotton, again grown here. It's all done unsure. From the growing processing the fibre, right through to the garment. Why try? (laughs) It's not easy. What are the challenges and and the benefits? I mean, I said to Marielle, is it even possible? She said, I'm already doing it. Yes. (laughs) Okay, I think you're going to enjoy this. If you've got comments or feedback, please do get in touch. You can find me as usual on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. The show is also on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. Check out the show notes for lots of links, how to find out about full circle fibres, how to apply, oh, how to find out about the Country Road Climate Fund, because actually the latest round has just opened. Applications are now open until the 30th of November 2023. So if you think you've got a project that sounds like it might relate, there's more details on the Country Road website. Check it out. Okay, let's listen to Marielle's story. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Marielle Chamberlain. Lovely to be here, Claire. 
I am actually very glad that we're doing this because I've been watching your work for years now. It's been, I don't know, eight years or something since we met. I think of you as this very rich source of knowledge about an aspect of this industry, fashion and textiles, that weirdly, I feel like lots of people who work in it don't know about. And that might sound intriguing and mad, but (laughs) we're going to unpack that, right? Because the work that you do it's not the same thing as just ordering off a line sheet from a distant supplier overseas or looking at a fabrics watch and saying, I love that one. No, no, it's not. Um, Gosh, where to begin? So yeah, I'm a textile technologist, uh, studied textile science, and I have spent the last 25 years working in all different parts of the supply chain. What that means is I've actually been on the ground, in the weeds, any of those things you might say, from every stage, working with fibre growers, working in spinning mills or with spinning mills, with fabric manufacturers, with garment makers, and from the perspective of being in a buying team at both a small brand and a large retailer. We're going to have a conversation about the missing links in domestic textile production in countries where the lion's share of production long ago moved offshore, and what that means for sustainability, and of course about your work with Full Circle Fibres. Ready? Yes, let's go. Okay, but before we go, you just mentioned that you are a textile technologist. What is that? Well, I am, for the textile industry, an engineer, a scientist. I studied textile science. Well, that means all of the different aspects of what goes into making the cloth and the product you're wearing, which is different from a garment technologist. That's a whole specialist field. But everything from fibre to fabric, I studied four years at uni. Where did you study? Manchester? Yeah, Manchester. So I was at UMIST. It's now Manchester University again. But the building I studied in was Manchester Technical College. And it's been around since the mid 19th century because they were training people technically to work in the textile industry. Of course. Some of the machines might even have been from them. It felt like that. I exclaimed then because I was like, well, obviously, we need to educate people who work in our industries. And I'm from the north of England. So And regular listeners to this podcast probably heard us talk about different textile sectors in different countries. But the north of England, Manchester, Leeds, it was wool, it was cotton, it was spinning, it was mills. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, other parts of the UK too, the southwest is actually quite massive from wool. Um, Some of the original carpet industries all the southwest. And there's still still some amazing mills in Devon at the moment as well, which is phenomenal. Really? Um, Yeah, really. I'll get to that bit later. It's quite cool. (laughs) Okay, but this idea of um, bringing together science and technology with fibres. Yes. I often think we talk about fibres as something touchy-feely and sensual and crafty. Mm -hmm. And we maybe neglect the obvious existence of this scientific side, how fibres are structured, how they perform. Is that what this is about? It's part of it. That's just the beginning, though. So there is the science of the structure of fibres, which is polymer science, whether it's natural fibre or synthetic. They're all still polymers, down to the bits that are crystalline or amorphous, how they accept dye, how they behave under different manufacturing conditions. But then there's what do we do with them? And actually, that is a myriad of stages. How do we make a yarn? That depends on whether they're short fibres or whether they're long bits of fishing line continuous filament. Um, What do we do to put textures in them? The amazing amount of stuff we do to make one fibre feel like another, both ways, between natural and synthetic fibres, the polymer science, what goes into them, how do you get colour into them? That's a whole business of textile colour chemistry. Actually, I've got to stop you because before we forget about colour, 
You told me the other day that you were judging a prize for the Society of Dyers and Colorists, and they're in headquartered in Bradford, which is close to where I grew up, but I'd never heard of them. Yeah, well, every day all of us experience the benefit of the work of this organisation. So the Society of Dyers and Colorists, or the SDC, of which I'm a chartered member, so I'm a chartered colorist, which is like being a chartered engineer in a specialist field. This organisation's been around since 1884, And the first synthetic dye was actually made in 1856 by William Perkin. The Perkin House is the name of the place in Bradford that we're headquartered, but it's now a global organisation where the science and um, skill of dyeing is um, housed, I guess. It's it's, it's an education charity now, but also um, really a a host of knowledge. What would be the science of colouring? Oh, <laughs> we could use a whole hour on that. Um, well, there's there's a couple of aspects. There's the business of making a molecule coloured, like what makes a molecule a pigment. And that's not just in textiles, that's in all the colour in our lives. They might be natural, they might be, um, they might be synthetic. And, you know, there's a lot of myths around natural and synthetic, like people have a lot to say, say about indigo, for example. Oh, it's natural. Molecularly, synthetic indigo is identical to natural indigo. So, really? Yeah. And then there's the business of getting it onto, in our case, the textile and it's staying there. And once it's staying there, it's staying the colour that you want it to stay. So not fading in light or not changing colour with sweat or not changing colour with chlorine if it's swimwear. So all of the test methods that we use to control quality, the standards are actually, a lot of them were developed and looked after by the Society of Dyes and Colourists. So that's British standards, ISO standards that the people doing the good due diligence in their quality are using. Even the standardisation of the laundry powder used to do a wash test. Really? Yep, really. So when you talk about the technology that goes into textiles, it's all of the the above that you just mentioned, but it's also systems, right? It's engineering. Yeah. Yeah, it's all engineering. So you know, there's the really tactile, lovely part of textiles, which is what I started with, really. I've just been making stuff since forever. You know, the, the part that might feel more crafty and artisan and, and that sort of really um, creative experience. But then when it comes to our industry and scaling, even s- small scaling, it's actually all about an ability to manage consistency, which puts us into the world of quality management and due diligence and process control. Oh, Marielle, um, this is a a topic for another podcast, but I'm just going to throw it at you because I thought it was so interesting and lovely. A little while ago, I was watching a panel at the Future Fabrics Expo in London and Dianjin from Post Carbon Lab, which is a biotech startup, talked about how the obsession with standardisation in the textile industry made us, held us back if we want to move into a brave new world where maybe we co-create with bacteria. And she was like, what if it wasn't always the same green? What if I couldn't guarantee that? Get over it. (laughs) Yep. Well, that's, that, that's, I love it actually, (laughs) because I think it's really that, that brings beautifully to horses for courses, right? Because there's times when it doesn't matter, but then there's times when it really does. And so the tools that we use for standardization when it comes to fashion Mostly we just want, say, if it's a red T-shirt, we want it to be all the same red so that the, the dyeing isn't patchy. Like we're talking about that kind of stuff. Like it's, I think it's phenomenal that any cloth comes out level, to be honest. It's a miracle of chemical engineering. 
been in the industry as this long and I still think it's a miracle. But then also you can think about some other things. So say, for example, uh, you go into a store that sells lots of suiting separates and you can go to any store and you might need the size 12 jacket and the size 10 pant, but they're all identical. That is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So, so, you know, there's that, there's uniform and then all the same systems we use for something that's aesthetically nice to control. We also use to look after people's lives. So we use that for fire retardancy. We use that for waterproofness. We use that, you know, people who put their lives on the line to rescue people in a flood depend on people in our industry doing their job. Actually, thank you for bringing that up and we might come back to it later. But when we talk about textiles and when I Mm -hmm. often use the umbrella term fashion just to get people thinking about everything we wear, it's not just fashionable or designer or seasonal clothes that we buy because they're gorgeous. It's actually the textiles that we use in so many different formats, right? And it might not even be wearables. No, no. So, and actually that brings me to that lovely example from Devon, Heathcote's. And they've been around for a couple of hundred years. If you look at their website, you will see things about super technical textiles, carbon fibre in aircraft. They made the parachute for the Mars rover. Really? They've been making tulle for ballet and bridal for 200 years. Wow. And we've still got that in Britain. That's there in Devon. Yeah. And the point is, you don't just make for fashion in a factory. You don't just make for function in a factory. Factories need to be filled. And sometimes the skills you need to do one thing transfer to another. Mm. It's so, back to specialization as well, though, isn't it? Yeah. And so, so yeah. So, really, it's about the fact that you've got this toolkit to make textiles. And how many different things can you do with this toolkit? And that's where that real technical creativity comes in that is really cool. When I, when I said back to specialization, perhaps I didn't make that clear at the start that that's what I was thinking of. But when I learned about your background professionally, that's what was really inspiring me, this idea that you obviously need to have specialists in so many areas of the textile world. And yet, you and I talked about this the other day, there's so much attention put onto the next generation of fashion designers that when you imagine going to fashion school, that you think that's all there is. But there are all these other areas. You could be a member of the Society of Dyers and Colorists. You could study textile yeah. technology like you did. Well, how, yeah. did how did you get into this? <laughs> well, as I said before, I've been making things pretty much since I could remember. I was just the kid that clothed my toys as well as played with them. <laughs> and I always used to really love watching the clothes show. <laughs> oh, Yes. For listeners who don't know about this, it was a seminal TV show in Britain where you and I both grew up, Marielle. And in fact, we've got Karen Franklin, who is like the rock star presenter coming up on the podcast later this series. That's exciting. Yeah. So, and I just remember, I like, I loved it, but I can also remember not seeing myself as part of that fashion world. Like I'm the kind of person that wears something a year after it came out. Like once I've got the hang of how everybody's wearing, like I'm not trendy, right? Just not. I just need to be comfy and functional really appreciate good fit but I don't need to be at the bleeding edge of what's the next look it's not me so I was like well that clearly isn't where my wheelhouse is in the industry and I was all right at art but I wasn't that good at it but I was at maths and chemistry so I was fortunate mum saw an ad for textile science degrees sponsored by M&S and their suppliers and there were three places doing it it was uh, Manchester Leeds and Galashiels and off I went to UMIST because I wanted to do a year abroad as part of my course. So that's what I did. A year abroad being what? 
So, so they're used to really brilliant for any sort of industrial science course, a year in industry. So you do two years of your study, then you go and work and get work experience and then do your final year, which actually was fantastic. You went to Mauritius. I went to Mauritius. I worked in a spinning mill on a rainy hill in the middle. And that is where I first experienced the smell of wool in a dye house. And to those few people listening to this that might identify with this, I was hooked. I was hooked to the process of managing colour. I was hooked to being where it was happening. And I've never tired of being in factories since. Wow. We're going to talk about factories and the experience of being in them and the importance of them in a minute. And actually, I think it's so interesting. I really, really do. And we haven't had a podcast about this before. But before I get on to that, I want to just ask you this, Marielle. Mm-hmm. We did a call the other day to plan this podcast because there's so much we can talk about. And one of the things yeah. that stuck in my brain was that you said to me, Claire, if we want to make fashion more sustainable and circular, we don't need to invent new things. All the ingredients and skills already exist. What did you yes. mean? <laughs> well, really, at the end of the day, most of the things we need to do are already tools that we have. Like we need to make cloth well, we can already knit or weave cloth and we can already dye cloth and we can already make clothes. We can already make the thread to sew them together. We can already grow the fiber and we can already regenerate the fiber in the case of things like regenerated cellulose, you know, that whole family, whether it be from timber or gathering back our cellulose or cotton-based textiles. So if you look at it like that and you go, well, hang on a minute, we've got all the ingredients to start from the ground And we can choose to put them together in a way that they could end in the ground. So why are we not just getting on with it? Which (laughs) is really interesting. So why aren't we? (laughs) Yeah, why aren't we? And the, the thing is, for the most part, the industry is so fragmented that most people can't stand in one place and see what the other's doing. And for most people, they need to physically have seen it or experienced it to appreciate what that looks like. And so I guess that puts me back in this unusual position of having... A, a brain that works in systems and B, having actually experienced that. So whenever I'm describing to anybody, oh, we could do this, I'm physically imagining what that space looks like for real because it can already happen. So, yeah. And then and then with that, obviously, all the skills exist as well. But we've been focusing on the race to the bottom to be able to make things as cheaply as possible. Obviously, the use of synthetics has come in massively. But if we really look at the things that we need do we need synthetics in much? Really? Not that much volume. So we could probably solve 90% of the problem by switching. Easy to say. (laughs) Easy to say. But I think it's really interesting, this idea that we already have so many of the tools and processes that we need to be able to make things in a more sustainable way. But we are a bit obsessed with, I mean, I've just written a book about the future. And the Mm -hmm. feeling is that we need to enter this brave new world of new processes, some of them we've never even imagined yet, and new fabrics and new ways of working with bacteria and biotech and algae. And that is very seductive as an idea. But I do love that you're saying, hang on a minute, though, we've got so much already that if we just change the way it's all connected, we could actually start now instead of dreaming of this amazing tomorrow that shimmers in the distance, but we're not there Absolutely. And I actually think this becomes this distraction that a lot of businesses hide behind. It's like, oh, we're waiting for this thing to come on stream. And it's like, you know what, we could just do most of what we need to do right now. And for example, the gear you need to spin a yarn that it may be recycled content or may have the regenerated cellulose that's come from 
uh, old jeans or something like that. Well, we're already using current spinning technology and that spinning technology is constantly improving. So the only real difference between now and 150 years ago is how efficient and how automated that technology has become, which means there's not a high labor content anymore in every part of the industry, but the garment making and even that has got more and more efficient. So there's absolutely no excuse to not just use these tools with the ingredients with the end in mind. Well, we've got to change the systems and the habits we've formed around how we do it, though, and that's very difficult. People don't like to change their habits. They don't. And also, I think we have to remember that um, for a lot of the big suppliers, because there'll be people that may be listening to this going, yeah, right, but who's going to pay for it? Fair, fair call. But then equally, it's it's about that sort of coming together. But it's very difficult if the people that are in the shoes of a buyer don't understand what they're asking of their supplier. So are they asking something possible or asking something impossible? Or then if they ask something possible and that supplier goes ahead and does some development, do you then buy that from that supplier or do you take it down the road to see if someone else can do it cheaper? And why would they bother? Because there's a lot of people listening to this that will know that's what they've been obliged to do to meet their KPIs. We're going to talk about what we can do domestically. I want to think about this for some general points we could make globally, as I mentioned before, in countries where we've long ago shifted production offshore, but we used to make a lot of stuff. At what point did we decide that, as you use this phrase, we can't make stuff? Well, you know, it's kind of pithy to talk about it being just globalisation. That obviously kicked in, particularly the late 90s and 2000. And for our industry, a massive change happened to the global trade agreements. There was a thing called the multi-fibre agreement. What happened was there were limits on volume, and now there aren't. And and the theory was that by opening up um, the opportunity for other countries to create manufacturing, to be able to create wealth creation in their own industries, that we would lift people out of poverty. And it was probably part of the Millennium Development Goals to facilitate that, which, you know, in theory, sounds fantastic. In practice, all of the skills that we developed to manage quality and make things really efficiently basically got weaponized (laughs) into making as much as humanly possible as cheaply as humanly possible because we never had to be accountable for the waste at the end of it. We've never really been accountable for the exploitation. Like, how long is it since No Logo got written? Nearly 30 years? And really, for all the amazing work that's been done, it almost feels like for every factory that's been improved and come on stream, another two exploiting people comes in. So, you know, for all the work that gets done to improve the conditions or the environmental safety in one place, there's so much more volume coming into the system somewhere else to undercut it that we're still treading water or going backwards. And that leads us to the fact that we have no choice but to tackle volume. Okay, but I think there's also something in, you said to me the other day, we've sort of told ourselves for so long, oh, Mm -hmm. we don't make things here. Well, of course, it's all gone now. It's gone. It's offshore. We've lost it. That we've almost convinced ourselves out of even noticing what is still possible and what's still here. Well, that's that's also true. I think... um, like a decision kind of got made, oh, textiles, oh no, that's old, that's not new, it's not innovative, we're not interested, it's not advanced manufacturing. Like this is the bureaucratic or shiny building mindset you might call, yeah? The people pushing numbers around spreadsheets in the middle of CBDs, bureaucrats, 
corporate advisors, consultants. Do I sense you're not one of those? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> and and then, you know, it was just so easy to order from offshore. We upskilled the supply chains offshore. We took our brilliant people and put them into manufacturing locations in other places and shared all our knowledge. That's not saying we shouldn't have done that, but we did not do that with a level playing field. We did it to save money. We did it to save money. But it's interesting because we were all making money. Like the business of fashion, for example, was making a lot of money in the 90s and the early thousands. So, you know, it's not like everybody was on their bootstraps. So we just changed who was making how much money rather than whether people were making money. We moved from maybe some more decentralized prosperity to, I guess the change happened in the financial sector and the need for ever increasing shareholder dividends, whether it be retailers as blue chip shares, whether it be just the power of finance and the sort of hunger to constantly make more money from money um, and sort of hunting almost like a plague, really. Where's the next place we can just, you know, do things as cheaply as possible? When you said make more money from money, I felt really sick. That I think that's actually what's wrong with what we're doing today, that we've mm -hmm. forgotten. It's a bit similar to how we've lost the connection with how our clothes are made, and that's mm -hmm. made us as consumers or users of fashion more less emotionally invested. Yep. But I think we've also, in terms of the way our economy is structured and the ways people dream of getting rich, we've lost the connection with the yeah. value of the skill. Yes, that it takes absolutely. to make a thing. And that is sad, right? Because yeah. that has its own delight, right? Mm. And if you wipe that absolutely. out, you are just that guy with a spreadsheet saying, more money, please. Sorry, I said guy, but it is patriarchal, so I'm not sorry. Well, a lot of it, you know, you look at you look at VC, which is basically looking for ways to clip the ticket without actually having to be responsible for anything. Everything's outsourced. Third party this, outsourced that. Let's just talk about Australia. What, yes. when it comes to fashion can we make in Australia today? We're recording this in September of 2023. Well, here in Australia, we grow world-leading fibre. We grow 4% of the world's cotton, which is the most traceable and efficient cotton in the world. And we also grow the lion's share of fine merino in the world. And yet all of that pretty much goes overseas in bales. However, we do still make cloth here. We do have weavers. We do have knitters. We have dyers. We have printers. Um, and they're in a range of markets from highly technical through to apparel and fashion. And we obviously can make garments here still. So we can do everything but turn our fibre into yarn to then make the cloth here. So that what is that the missing link? What What's That's the, the opportunity link. there? Well... You know, really, it's glaring, isn't it? It's like, why on earth did we let that go? That's our value add to our raw material. And if you speak about anything hard in this country, minerals for batteries, all of that stuff, oh, my God, we should be value adding to our raw materials. And it's like, well, we grow a lot of fiber. We should be value adding to that. So that's really the obvious thing for circularity here. And with that, there's been a lot of, oh, we can't do it. We can't afford the power. Well, that is insane. We are absolutely drowning in solar power in this country and the change in the last 20 years since we really let most of that go 
has been phenomenal. So all of the metrics that maybe people said, oh, we can't afford to do that here. Well, that's all changed. So we can relook at it and go, well, actually, it could be viable to do that here now. And also, we are in a really strong position because the customer base globally is valuing things differently now. Yeah. Why should we, apart from the reasons you've just outlined, because we can and because customers want it, let's talk about this phrase, which I had not come across until I had learned it from you, sovereign capability. (laughs) What is that and why does it matter in textiles? Sovereign capability is really about what are the things that we need as a society in our sort of stocks and flows. So what are the things we need for everyday life and what are the things that kind of keep civilization going? I guess for many people beyond those of us that think in supply chains, the business of sovereign capability came into glare with COVID because all of a sudden the world's supply chains were shocked, to put it mildly. And for a little while there, we did not know if there were going to be ships or airplanes arriving in the country. The sovereign capability of something is an ability to make it from scratch. We're obsessed with our sovereign capability to kill, our defence capability missiles, etc. And yet our sovereign capability to care doesn't seem to matter. While we can assemble a lot of things that we need, we can't do everything. We can't make it from scratch. We might need to get the yarn to be able to knit a sock or weave a bandage. We can't do it for ourselves. It's just so sobering, isn't it? All right, tell us the big idea behind Full Circle Fibres. So Full Circle Fibres began because after years of being in the industry, moving stuff around the world, felt like it was soul destroying to do. And I thought, well, I'd like to know every stage of the supply chain and possibly other people would too. And at the time, paddock to plate was beginning to come on stream here. And there were already some people in the wool space doing that. So I thought, well, I don't need to compete with them. That's brilliant. Wool's amazing. And really, it started from a handcraft point of view, to be honest. And could I get a crochet or knitting yarn from Australian cotton? which led me to be introduced to my amazing cotton grower and then look to go, okay, well, let's see if we can get this all the way traceable back to farm and create some products that are possible in this country and see if we can create a market and take responsibility for every stage. Who is your amazing cotton grower? Oh, Glenn Rogan, Australian super cotton in St. George, six hours drive west of Brisbane, who is just a treasure and I think for any of your listeners, the best way to describe it is he's the Australian version of the conversation he had with Sarah Langford. You know, he's farming with his grandchildren in mind. He's absolutely nerdy about the quality of his fibre. And they are constantly trialling and changing and looking to improve their systems. But it is absolutely a compromise. Australia doesn't grow organic cotton because it uses far too much land and water compared with GM best practice. And so that GM best practice actually includes working with bugs, rotating crops and working with science in a place-based way. After years of working with selling yarn and fabric to local small businesses, I've learned a lot about what's possible and what isn't. But I've also had to face the fact that unless we look to close this loop onshore, we're never going to really be able to make sense of how we could be circular best practice because We are blessed with natural advantages here in Australia to do that, not only from a what we grow point of view, but also the amazing, rich science and research base that we have got. And that's not just in textiles, which is here at Deakin University and I'm working with them, but our amazing, rich, deep research capability in 
agriculture, soil science, biochar, all of this stuff that's going to need to come together to put this natural fiber system in balance. So with full circle fibers, I've sort of tested the market essentially. What's possible? What's possible here? What costs what? What might make sense to scale? That might be in cloth, that might be in yarn. It's also really, really important to note that making yarn as an exportable commodity in Australia makes a great deal of sense because we are only 10 days from Asia. And when you make the yarn, you lock in the integrity because you don't cut a yarn batch when you make cloth. If you're new to this, imagine that you've got a batch of fibre and you know exactly where it came from and the integrity with which it was produced. You know the story of the grower and the farm. You know where it came from. All good. Then you send it off somewhere else. You lose sight of it. And it could well be mixed up with all different batches when it comes to spinning, right? Yeah. So really what happens is fibre goes offshore and it's all blended. It's kind of like Johnny Walker, when really what a lot of people want now is single malt. So in order to do that, you have to stay in control of your manufacturing. And the other thing is, now we're valuing it. So to put that back in place, to put that spinning capability in, makes sense. It might not have even made sense 10 years ago, but it does make sense now. And we've scoped and costed that. And then the really wonderful thing about that is we only have to add one machine to be able to recycle as well as spin virgin. So then we don't just close the loop for the virgin supply chain onshore, but then we can go back and recycle. And with that, be really in control of all of it. Okay, so is this what you're trying to do now with mud to mull? Ah, well, that's really exciting to talk about because it's one of the things that we could scale with bringing the fibre foundry, which is the spinning project, back on. So the fantastic thing is once you've got a toolkit, you can do lots of things. Who else are you working with? Do you want to talk to us about Geelong Textiles? I'm working with Loomtex, which was Geelong Textiles. They've just uh, got some new innovative-minded owners, which is fantastic, and also working with Deakin University and their textile team are phenomenal. They actually are world leaders in regenerated cellulose research. Yep, here in Australia, our opportunity to work together to use the natural fibers that we grow, but to absolutely engineer using every stage of the supply chain to be as super low impact as possible and also create a beautiful product. What did it mean to you then to be a recipient of the Climate Fund? So what's really gorgeous about the way that this fund's been set up is it facilitates those of us that want to work together on innovative things just getting on with it. Because a lot of the time, funding for innovation gets tied to three-year PhDs or some great co-funding arrangement that assumes a big brand wants to do something or this, that and the other. But the blunt truth is a lot of even those bigger companies now aren't carrying people with the technical experience to imagine the innovation. So really what happened when we saw the Climate Fund become available was, oh, this project that we've been talking about that was kind of ready to go. We could go, oh, great. We could actually we could do it. Funding yeah. to make this happen. And so what's really nice is it's essentially a commercial trial because we're not, we're using current technology, but we're putting the jigsaw together in a different way. I really want to acknowledge that the approach Country Road's taken to putting this fund together has facilitated the kind of stuff we really need to do. And I would really, really recommend brands both locally and globally have a look at this because they've helped us bridge a missing link gap with this project. 
It's actually really heartening. I don't talk a lot about brands on this podcast, but credit where it's due, it is really good to see when a brand takes proactive steps to do something about the stuff that's wrong with our industry. And it isn't very common, but it takes people in leadership to actually want to do it, doesn't it? Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting when people always say government should get behind this, government should get behind that. Well, government find it much easier to get behind stuff if it's got an endorsement from a trusted brand. Country Road launches fund with this big idea to really address the fashion industry's climate impacts and try to make it live more lightly on the land and protect biodiversity. How does what you do fit into that? Because it's slightly different. You're talking about reshoring, you're talking about circularity, yeah. you're talking about manufacturing skills, but how does that help us when it comes to the climate fight? Well, for a start, the way we're using the combination of wool and cotton is in a very specific way. We're looking to use wool that's normally considered second grade because it's short, uh, which is actually perfect for using with cotton. Part of we're the fleece, let, part of the fleece, that yeah, shorter fibre. Basically, it's the bit around the bum <laughs> of the fleece. <laughs> it's really muddy. That's why we called it mud to mud. Is that right? Are people yeah. going to like that or hate that? I don't know. We've given it a good wash. Um <laughs> Actually, hang on a minute. Have you given it a good wash here? Because one of the things we're always told about wool is that we can't scour because the the chemicals are too harsh. I don't know how we deal with the argument that we're happy for it to be done elsewhere, if that's the case. But can we scour? That in general drives me nuts because that's back to that unlevel playing field. It's like, oh, we can't be bothered to uh, meet our regulations here. So we'll just go somewhere with a lower regulation. It's like that, you know, that sort of colonialization of waste. There are a couple of scourers here. Essentially, we're looking to use A, the wool component of it being what's considered a second grade fibre because it's short. It's short because it's the mucky bit from around the sheep's bum as opposed to the middle of the fleece, but it's still beautifully fine. Blend it with our amazing high quality cotton and then blend it in such a way that we don't need to do the superwash process to make the wool machine washable because that's actually a massive impact upstream. So the reduced footprint of this particular yarn and then cloth comes from mm-hmm. from its textile technology. Yes, exactly. And this is where the kind of design engineering comes in. And a lot of people don't associate the word engineering with textiles because the product is soft. But just because the product's soft doesn't mean the engineering is. It's actually really complex, but also really cool and fun. And when you get that real nexus of design and engineering together, that is when really cool things get created. And that kind of brings me back to the fact we've already got the tools. Like when you get the right people in the room that understand the capabilities of the machinery that we already have all over the world, what does it look like if we just use that a bit differently with the ingredients we have? What does it look like if we actually put some quality management back in there to create stuff that's going to last a long time again rather than just the cheapest? So we just take the pressure off the volume going through the system but use everything that's under our noses. After the Brexit referendum in the UK, Marielle, you wrote an Mm -hmm. op-ed on LinkedIn about how sad you were about it. Me too. Horrible. Mm -hmm. But you kind of used that moment to talk about what we stood to lose. And you described, well, the title of this this op-ed was Industrial Pride, Why Making Stuff Locally Makes Us Feel Good. And you talked about the privilege of knowing what industrial pride looks like, having grown up on the border of England and South Wales. And you wrote so beautifully about like visiting where your dad grew up and Mm -hmm. how much it had changed. And you wrote about the slag heaps in the working coal mines and how now it was greener and cleaner. But you said, 
but also poorer and Mm -hmm. the heartbreak of watching it traded away. And then you talked about when you look at your kids, you're like, I can't imagine them working down a mine, but once this (laughs) was normal. And it made me think, I mean, I recognize that because I'm from the North as well, but it made me think, do we want to work down mines? <laughs> do we want to clock in and out of factories? We can be misty-eyed about the end of industry and community that had some really strong parts to it because you knew the people in your village and you felt like you belonged and you were connected to your land and you did an honest day's graft, but you're also skin and having a great risk of industrial accidents and yeah. blah, um, blah, blah, right? Uh, what do you reckon? Yeah, so- <laughs> You know, I had a history of growing up visiting Merthyr Tidville, which um, should you visit, there's a whole pile of the original Industrial Revolution's history there that you can visit as well when it was really, you know, it's one of the hotbeds of the original labour movement as a result of that. And that's obviously horrifying. But I think it's more about just transition. And one of the frustrations, one of the kind of big roars that came with that sort of Brexit vote was a protest of, you know, the financialization of everything and nothing else mattering and people feeling cast aside. And there is no need for industry to be like that. And what's worse is not only did we go, well, we don't want to do that anymore, but it's okay for other people to do that. Like, how dare we? Like, how arrogant is that? You know, oh, well, we don't want to have to take responsibility for people's better working conditions now that we've improved our laws and our workers' rights. So we're just going to go and, you know, profit from someone else's lack of regulation. Like, really? Mm. That's just sickening. Mm. It's like we export nothing but trouble (laughs) and we make nothing (laughs) but latte. Yeah, and, and I think with that as well is... And you see it and you see it time and again. You see it here in Australia, you see it lots of places. And they're like, well, we're going to retrain people as baristas. Now, don't get me wrong. I enjoy good coffee. But if somebody was working in a steel foundry making girders for a massive bridge and you're telling them they're going to be making a coffee, they just feel like they became invisible. Like all of their skill, their knowledge, their care just doesn't matter. And they feel cast aside and yet their capability is probably mm, phenomenal. It's so interesting, um, this, yeah. Wow. Like, how would we be okay with that? You also told me about when you first worked briefly after university mm-hmm. for Marks and Spencers in Britain mm-hmm. in the 90s and how you were learning from, I think you called you described them as wise old heads, but, you know, yeah. people who really knew stuff about quality yeah. control, about how to make things. And we've lost their skills now because they weren't replaced when things moved in the same way. Obviously, there were, there were jobs made, but those skill sets were devalued. Yeah. So essentially, I feel like I just had the privilege of working at a slide indoors moment because not many years after I left M&S and went to work in a factory, lots of those people were then made redundant and decided that they were, you know, dead wood rather than wise knowledge. But they were the people that kind of wrote the rule book on how to manage quality. They wrote the first chemical safety standards. Some of them were the first ethical sourcing standards, developers and managers. And so it was, you just don't realise what Mm -hmm. you've got access to until you're not there. And so I witnessed that in action. Let's finish then on what we stand to gain by investing in reshoring or supporting what's currently here manufacturing in Australia but elsewhere too I think one of the the things that people forget when we let go of our ability to make things make anything is that 
when a factory is running really well, it's like a family and there is such a rich variety of things to do when you have a manufacturing ecosystem because it's not just one factory. It's always a collection of different operations that kind of work in synergy with each other. And that's another thing that people don't realise. They think, oh, we'll just put one thing in. It's like, it doesn't work like that. Like you think of Northern Italy, you think of Northern England, it's a collection of capability. And what that means is you've got all this sort of co-creativity of artistry plus the engineering and the manufacturing, but there's jobs for so many kinds of people. There's jobs for people who are neurodiverse. There's jobs for people who just want to clock in and go home at the end of the day. And there are jobs for people who are brilliant at inspecting things. And there are jobs for people who like driving forklifts. And there are jobs for people who love policy and quality management. There are all kinds of roles. And for people who never wanted to go to St. Martin's and be trendy, but want to do that textile technology. Yeah, people who love working in a lab, but that there's so much creativity goes on there. They've got to come up with a new recipe to work on a weird combination of nettle plus wool. (laughs) Like, that's actually quite a creative task. Mariel, do you know what I'm going to call this podcast? (laughs) Factories can be fabulous. Yes. And yet we got scared of it. You know, people go, oh God, we've got to go visit the factory. And I'm like, oh, like, where did that disdain come from? You know, like, that's where it all happens. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you.